Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And this is another episode of The Rad Rap, where we watch a series of films with a common thread bringing them together, unpack our thoughts and feelings on each film in the series, name the dads, as always, and share what we're going to take away from it before declaring the series radically wrapped. This is a spoiler-free episode, and as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. As a little bonus piece of information about this episode we are currently recording it on the day of our anniversary our 14 year anniversary as a matter of fact old yeah we're dusty old enough to get our learner's permit (laughs) i don't know who we could go for a ride with who would be the responsible adult maybe our cat thompson yeah he's gonna he's 12 but he can yeah (laughs) definitely be our designated driver for sure um so that's fun. Yeah. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Kiss, kiss. Uh, Yeah. So we are going to be taking a look this time on the Rad Rap at John Waters, a masterclass in filth. Our favorite theater in the whole world. Metro Cinema did a whole series of John Waters films that span decades of his work, many of which I would say actually most of which we've never seen before. So it was very exciting because not only was it a bunch of John Waters films in a row, but it all culminated culminated in Metro Cinema actually bringing John Waters to perform live at Metro Cinema, his new stand-up show. And when he was performing it, I think it was only the second or third time he said that he'd ever performed it live. Yeah, and after that, he was going to Vancouver and then that was it. Like, it wasn't like he was doing a big, long tour. So... This was pretty special. Like the news that he was going to come and do a stand up show happened first. And then after those tickets went on sale, they announced this seven series kind of over two months curated film, which they titled A Masterclass in Filth. And we are echoing because that is what we watched. Yeah. Um, 
And it was just so exciting to get to see these particular films that kind of have marked his career. Many that we'd heard about, but hadn't seen a couple that we really like already. Um, and also have people like speaking before them and seeing them with crowds and then culminate with getting to see the director himself. So let's get into it because it's seven movies plus a little chat about his live show. Mm-hmm. We're going to start with the first film that Metro played, which is Female Trouble. It's a 1974 comedy crime. Most of his films are listed as comedy slash crime. <laughs> I think that already tells you a lot about John Waters. Yeah, totally. It's directed and written by John Waters, as every film that we're going to watch is. Yeah. It stars Divine as Don Davenport, David Lockery as Donald Dasher, Mary and Vivian Pierce as Donna Dasher, Mink Stoll as Taffy Davenport. And I do know Edith Massey was in it as well, but I didn't list what her character was named. Aunt Ida. Aunt Ida. Synopsis for Female Trouble. A spoiled schoolgirl runs away from home, gets pregnant while hitchhiking, and ends up as a fashion model for a pair of beauticians who like to photograph women committing crimes. This also tells you everything you need to know about John Waters. What did you think of Female Trouble? I mean, it's the first in the series and it's such a such a strong start, I thought. I mean, this is only my second John Waters that I've ever seen. The first one and only other one being Crybaby. And this is so this is also the first one that I've seen with Divine. And Divine, the name Divine and the powerhouse that is divine is so synonymous with John Waters because the two of them collaborated on so much of particularly his early work. This was just so wild and ridiculous. Yeah, it was such a great one to start with because despite, like you said, having seen, you know, I've seen Crybaby probably over 20 times um, and I had seen Hairspray Back when the new Hairspray came out, I was like, well, you got to watch the first one first. And I did. Um, (laughs) Did you say that to yourself? Probably. (laughs) Well, I I think I watched it with um, that mutual, uh, that (laughs) a mutual friend that you and I had um, who wanted to go see the new one. And I think I was like, well, I don't want to see the new one until we watch the first one. And so we watched the original together. Um, That's good. Good, good on you for doing your homework. Yeah, I've always been pretty great. I know. Uh, (laughs) That's why you've been with me for 14 years. (laughs) But I, you know, shamefully, despite loving Crybaby and having like a general soft spot for John Waters, I didn't really know his work. Mm-hmm. And now having seen the films that we've seen, Crybaby really isn't the best representation of what he does or what he's known for. And so it was so great to see, like, for lack of a better word, a real John Waters film. I mean, Crybaby is too, but when you see it in the progression of his films like there's you know there was quite a few people and and some who spoke more than once before the films who introduced us to this idea this terminology that I didn't know which is the dreamlanders and so that's what John Waters refers to or at least the world refers to as like the folks who commonly star in his movies mm-hmm. um and I didn't know these people I didn't know Mink Stoll I didn't know Mary and Vivian Pierce I knew of Divine but hadn't really watched anything she'd been in And so it was so cool to see them in something. And then as we're going through all these movies, just be like, oh, they're all in them. Yeah. And you can feel as our journey went on, you can tell that all of them were just so in it together. And they're just like, especially so many of these early John Waters films just feel like such a middle finger. 
Yes. And like feels so punk. Yeah. That's it. Like gay punk though, like queer punk. Right. So watching this and like thinking about this coming out in 1974, you know, like my parents, one who's dead, we all know this. And one who's like pretty old. I think my mom's 67. Like, I'm going to tell her you called her pretty old. Do not. She doesn't (laughs) listen to this show. She'll never find out. Um, But she would have been 18 when this came out. Yeah. This wouldn't, she wouldn't have liked this. I don't Mm. think. Maybe, maybe she was punk when she was 18. I don't know. But it's just like, it's a middle finger now. Imagine what it was like in 1974. It's so hilarious and weird and strange and icky, but like, aware of it being icky and the ickiness is like a way to be like fuck you to like the the man yeah stick it to the man yeah well it's so funny i'm looking at my notes that i wrote and i wrote some of these like immediately after we watched them so like some of my notes here are immediately after i watched that so we i hadn't seen any of the other stuff that we ended up watching so it's like the whole movie feels like a middle finger to society and i can see that being a trend in his work (laughs) hundred percent. And it's so great coming out the other end of the tunnel and having that be so validated. But and we'll probably touch on this a few times. You kind of alluded to it a little bit, but there's definitely kind of like eras of John Waters. Yeah. And the evolution of his filmmaking and the kind of stories he wants to tell and the kind of humor he wants to explore and the kind of satire he wants to dig into. And who the audience is. Totally. And that's so amazing to see from any creator like. I know that a lot of people can get a little bit tight about artists that they love trying something new or doing something that's different than what's come before. But I I think it's fun to see the growth and to see where a person is at in the seventies compared to the stuff they're putting out in the nineties. And I, I think that this is such a fun start to the journey and just like diving into the deep end of the madness that existed in John Waters work from the very beginning. Yeah, I pretty, so I also took the notes for this movie right after we watched it and I put, I can't wait to keep playing in this sandbox. Yeah. We've now, like we've just made that sandbox filthy. Like it's not, (laughs) nobody should go play in that anymore. Soiled. (laughs) It is, yeah, absolutely soiled. But my favorite part of this film was Mink Stole. Yeah. And that continued to be, like I wrote that right after I watched this And despite the fact that I actually had seen some movies she was in, I didn't know the name and I wouldn't have been able to pick her out and say that I knew who she was. Um, So she plays Taffy, uh, Divine's character, Don Davenport's daughter. Mm -hmm. She's way too old to be playing like the age of character she is. She's she's 14 years old. She's supposed to be 14. (laughs) She's wearing this like ridiculous like get up like almost like angelica from rugrats kind of thing not even like cynthia yeah cynthia you're absolutely right (laughs) cynthia from rugrats she keeps like pouting out her lips and being like "Mm." (laughs) she's just hilarious and like there's some dark shit that happens to her in it but man she just stole this the show for me and that you know everyone who's a part of this team and when you see them there's something that just makes my heart sing when there's like even a single actor and a director who continue to work together, but a whole team who continue to work together. Mm-hmm. There's something pretty cool about that. Yeah. And so continuing to see these different people, these different actors in all of John Waters films 
And then I think Mink Stoll and I believe Mary and Vivian Pierce are the only two who have been in every single one of his films, mm. um, starting with his features. I think maybe not in some of his shorts, mostly because everybody else is dead, Yeah, which is really sad. But Mink Stoll continues, you know, she was, I believe her and Mary and Vivian Pierce were at the recent um, Hollywood Walk of Fame dedication to to John Waters where he got his star. So I just think that's really cool. And I loved her in this and Mink Stoll continued to be my favorite. Just a couple of cool pieces of information about female trouble. I guess John Waters was originally going to call it rotten mind, rotten face, but then he thought it would be too good of a soundbite for film critics. Yeah. And he was like, no. <laughs> um, also he kind of came up with the like style of the film and what he wanted the vibe to be based on a Diane Arbus photo of like a family. It's probably one you've seen and mm. we can, we can link to it in the show notes, but I, I quite like Diane Arbus's photography. And when I read that and then I went and looked at the photo, I was like, Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's also, you know, we're going to talk about this a lot more in the next movie. There's some parts of John Waters early filmography that like in his stick it to the man, there's some things that I don't really jive with. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things is his like fascination with the Manson family. Mm. Um, and this film is dedicated to one of the Manson family members, which is really dark. And, you know, he addressed that in so many words at the live show, which we can talk about then. But mm -hmm. I think as much as I don't like some of these very particular moments or aspects of his early films, while I like them as a whole, there's like a moment here or there where I'm like, ugh. Yeah. They are from the 1970s. He has changed. He has grown. He reflects, you know, that kind of thing. And um, he's spoken at length about this like kind of obsession he had and how I think he's actually used the, the term irresponsible it was. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, just wanted to address that here because it's kind of a thread that runs through through his early films. Well, and I think when we're on top of that, there's also a lot of like language and content that exists in this film and some of his other earlier films that it's there and intended to be there for shock value. And as a stick it to the man thing. Well, totally. And while some of it, you know, now definitely doesn't sit well with me, I do see the importance in a lot of it and the relevance of a lot of it and what him and his peers and people in his community are going through. And I still can't help, but you know, yeah, it's not perfect, but sticking up the middle finger to people that are sticking up the middle finger to you is not, is also not perfect. So being able to do it and having a platform to do it, and then having people around you that I, I think that the the word I would use is like tethered to each other. Mm -hmm. Like they all found each other and were meant to come together and coalesce and make up all of these films and tell all these stories and just revel in the filth. Like I, I think it's super powerful. Really resonated with me. And yeah, this was one of your favorites. Yeah. Like you really liked this after we watched it. And I think it got us incredibly amped for what was to come. And then... Um, We'll move into the next one and have some things to say. Yeah. So how did Female Trouble make you feel? Fully committed to fall deeper down the filth spiral. How did it make you feel? It made me feel hilariously rebellious. Like I wanted to like go be gay, do crime, you know? <laughs> be gay, <laughs> it was like do crime. be a part of that. Um, 
which I think is a thread that definitely runs through his movies. Absolutely. Okay. The next one in this series is a biggie. It's the one that I would say, if you say the name John Waters, this one is probably one of the first ones that might come to mind, even if you haven't seen it. At least that was the case for me. Another comedy crime from 1972, it's Pink Flamingos. It stars Divine as Divine slash Babs Johnson, David Lockery as Raymond, Mary Vivian Pierce as Cotton, Mink Stoll as Connie, uh, Danny Mills as Crackers, Edith Massey as Edie, Chat- Channing Wilroy as Channing, Cookie Mueller as Cookie, and Paul Swift as the Eggman. Not the walrus. Cuckoo <laughs> All the egg stuff. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah, quick side note. I have like love-hate relationship with eggs. Like sometimes I, I fuck with, with an egg. I love having scrambled, hard-boiled, hit me up with it. But sometimes if I think too much about eggs, I want to explode and die because it's <laughs> too gross. And I've had some bad experiences with eggs in the past. I won't get into it. But this had a lot of egg content, and I'm, I'm I was in a not here for eggs. It was a horror movie egg, yeah. Kind of thing. <laughs> that was not here for eggs moment for me, so it was tough. Uh, synopsis: Notorious Baltimore criminal and underground figure Divine goes up against a sleazy married couple who makes a passionate attempt to humiliate her and seize her tabloid-given title as the filthiest person alive. What do you think of Pink Flamingos? So this was. This feels like it's the Citizen Kane of queer movies. Mm, like if yeah. you haven't seen Pink Flamingos, you should get your like queer card revoked. Like is kind of the the vibe, right? Yeah. Like if you like movies and you're a queer person, then like you should be obsessed with Pink Flamingos. So yeah, I've been meaning to watch this pretty much my whole life, but just never have. And um, like I've heard of the stuff that happens yeah, in it. Yeah, particular things that we like knew about in it um certainly this is why i know the name divine yeah so i was really excited for it the audience was huge i'd say the two the two most um full audiences for these seven movies were this one and crybaby yeah and i'd say quite different audiences for that as well and the person who came and spoke before this film like really created a particular kind of vibe um and the audience was really rowdy, like really, really, really rowdy, which like if I'd seen the movie before, probably like when we saw Friday the 13th, you know, if that's a movie I've seen a ton, I probably wouldn't have minded. But I was like, I've never seen this movie before. So, you know, at first that rowdiness was getting me really excited. And then there's some things that happen in this movie that I just I believe John Waters doesn't think are cool anymore. Yeah. But the audience was acting like it was really cool. Yeah. Like the everything that happens in this movie is the coolest thing that anybody's ever done on screen. And I more have that approach, like what you just talked about with female trouble, which is looking at this in the context of the time, it is so incredibly radical and important. But some of it, I think John Waters certainly would not do today. Yeah. Some of it, I think he absolutely would. Mm-hmm. And some of it, I don't think he would. Um, and one of the things, like I, I'd be remiss not to mention this is, we knew about the dog poop. Mm-hmm. We knew there's like unsimulated sex in it. We knew like all that kind of stuff. None of that bothered me. What I didn't know was that an animal dies on screen and that an animal really died on screen and that before that animal dies on screen, it is, I would say, being tortured. Mm-hmm. And that's like a hard line for me 
yeah. of I will not watch real animal cruelty on screen. I guess it'd be different if it was a documentary, but even then I'm like, I don't need to watch the documentaries about like the slaughter industry. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I'm a vegetarian for a reason. I don't need to watch the footage. Like mm-hmm. it's fine. I get it. I like, that's awful. I don't need to see it. Just like, I don't want to watch footage of real humans dying. Mm-hmm. Just not something I'm interested in doing. And we didn't know that going into the movie. So that was really distressing. I think if I had known, I would have been able to handle it better, either by being like, oh, this is the scene that's coming. I'm going to like close my eyes or I'm going to leave the theater or just be aware that this is going to happen and like steal myself for it. Yeah. Um, but we neither of us knew. And the audience was like roaring and laughing while this animal is being killed on screen. Mm-hmm. So like I thought this was going to be my favorite of the John Waters movies. And it ended up being my least favorite of the seven that we watched. Yeah, like I'm I'm glad to have seen it. And seeing it in the theater typically is the best way to see a movie if you're only going to watch it once. But yeah, th- that was just the trickiest thing for me to navigate is just the things that I felt the most kind of were the, were the toughest for me and the trickiest for me to navigate that were in the film were made all the trickier by people applauding and like uproariously cheering on because there's a you know it's actually it's a beautiful shot from the film and it's a very famous shot from the film where um divine walks past a wall that has free tex watson i believe on it who was a manson family member and again john waters has spoken about how he doesn't feel that that very obvious obsession and the way he went about it was responsible. Like he has said that. And yet when divine walks past that people were like whooping and hollering. And so, you know, there's this sense of that even feels disrespectful to who John Waters is now to me. Um, And then there's also some, like this is kind of the one that has the most sexual violence in it. I would say Mm. because the characters of Raymond and Connie have like women in their basement that they're, they've hired someone to impregnate against those women's will. And then they like sell the babies to queer couples, to like lesbian couples or something. Uh, I don't know. It's actually like, this was, I think what was disappointing for me about seeing this movie is when it worked for me, it was some of my favorite stuff that I saw in any of the movies of his we watched. But when it didn't work for me, it really didn't work for me and it made me uncomfortable. Yeah. And I didn't feel that way about any of his other movies. Yeah. No, I agree. And it's, it's so interesting because like this came before female trouble yeah and it it felt like i don't know i don't know if it's disrespectful to say this but it just felt like he had learned a lot from pink flamingos and then brought that into like films that came after and he just started to kind of like sharpen his pencil a little bit more yeah as he kept like it's long or felt long maybe it isn't long (laughs) but it felt like it was yeah but yeah like animal cruelty that's not it for me, like that's just like I, I'm I'm with you. It's just a hard line for me in film. Yeah, this is it's 148 minutes, and most of his other movies are like 90 minutes. Some of them are even under 90 minutes. So that extra 20 minutes, you feel it. Well, I think too, like there's this. You he wants to be shocking. He wants to like put up that put up that middle finger, but he also wants to make people sit through it. Yeah, I mean. To a certain extent, that's the goal of this movie is to make you uncomfortable. And it's still working in 19, 
nope, it came out in 1972. Yeah. It's still working in 2023 is what I meant to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a complicated movie for me because I went in with these like really high expectations. Then the audience kind of made me feel even more uncomfortable than the film was making me feel. The animal cruelty was just like a hard no. So I commend what this movie does and why people love it. But it actually is my least favorite of his movies. I agree. How did it make you feel? It made me feel this continuous revolving door of being obsessed or being uncomfortable. Yeah. It'd be like, that was amazing. I hate this. That was amazing. I hate this. And I'm just like stuck in this revolving trap door of it. Yeah. The like the filth spiral. I don't think I, I was quite <laughs> ready to go all the way down the filth spiral. Um, but it made me feel just a sense of complicated respect. <laughs> that is so fair. We went somewhere that we had been before. For the next one, we kind of, I really, really liked how Metro curated the order of these films. Like it wasn't chronological. And I don't, I don't actually know. We haven't spoken to anybody about like how they decided to do this, but it feels very intentional. And it really worked for me that we like saw these two kind of iconic movies from the early seventies. And then we jump into probably his most famous, more mainstream movie, um, which is Crybaby. So it came out in 1990. It's a comedy musical. We have covered it on the show before. Mm-hmm. And I think we had a really, really thoughtful, lovely conversation about it. And it was in our episode that our friend Cassandra Hamilton Brown was on. Really great episode. If you haven't listened, highly recommend you do. It was an episode where we uh, watched no movies by white straight men, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, which was very awesome and purposeful and we'll link to it in the show notes in case you haven't listened to it. So we'll talk about this in a different way, more in the context of the film itself. Um, It stars Ricky Lake as Pepper. She kind of shows up in a lot of John Waters later films. Amy Locaine as Allison Vernon Williams, Susan Tyrell as Ramona Ricketts, Polly Bergen as Mrs. Vernon Williams, Iggy Pop as Belvedere Ricketts, Tracy Lords as Wanda Woodward, Kim McGuire as Hatchet Face. And despite the fact that, Many people would say his name first. I'm saying his name last. Uh, Johnny Depp as Crybaby. Synopsis is in 1950s Baltimore, a bad boy with a heart of gold wins the love of a good girl whose boyfriend sets out for revenge. What did you think of Crybaby? I mean, I think that one of the biggest things for me is that watching it in the context of seeing all of this John Waters work together, it elevated this movie for me. Because mm-hmm. I feel like I have so much more context for where John Waters came from. And then after the series concluded of where he was going yeah, post Crybaby. And this just sits in such a sweet spot for me. And I've always liked it. Like you were the one that initially showed this film to me. And we've watched it a few times. But seeing it in the theater was really special. Seeing it amidst the series was really special. And I think that it just sits in this really nice sweet spot for what I really love about John Waters. This and the next film in the series are two of the extreme highlights for me. Yeah, this movie, it's one of the movies I've seen most in my entire life. And despite the fact that I have been watching this since I was like 13, obsessively on repeat, I couldn't have really told you when I was young who John Waters was. I didn't really know who had directed it. I just liked the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, So seeing it in the theater was incredibly special to me. 
like we've seen it so many times. We'd already covered it on the show. We hadn't really, we hadn't created this rad rap series idea yet. So we didn't even know if we would talk about it again. Mm-hmm. But I was like, no, I want to see it in the theater because I've never seen it in the theater. The audience was really full and less obnoxious than at Pink Flamingos. Different kind of audience. It seemed like a lot of people like me who maybe thought it was really sexy when they were young. Um, and there's a lot of whoops and hollers and laughs, but in like a way that felt lovely and in community. The one thing that really frustrated me was the speaker at the start said like he wasn't or they weren't going to talk about, you know, Johnny Depp and go into that and like kind of set a tone of like, we're not going to revere him. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as he walks on the screen, like most of the audience erupted in like whoops and hollers. And I'm like, can we not do that? Like, I love this movie and I'm not going to go on at length about this because we talked about it quite thoughtfully in the episode with Cassandra, but Johnny Depp meant a lot to me as a young person, was a huge part of my identity. And yet I acknowledge that he's a harmful person now and I no longer support any new stuff that he does. And I make clear how I feel about him now when I revisit his work that has meant a lot to me. Now, I think it's a kindness to myself to hold space to still love the movies that I have loved in the past. Um, but continue to also hold space for the reality of the harm that Johnny Depp has and continues to cause to people. Mm-hmm. So I didn't like that. I didn't like the whoops and hollers for him after the like speaker kind of established we weren't going to do that. Yeah. But other than that, this was a really, really, really fun audience. And I would agree with you. I, you know, having now watched Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble, looking at how this movie shifts what John Waters is doing and yet still retains that like middle finger and that, like, this is not a gay movie, but it is such a gay movie. Yeah. No, totally. And I go back to that language of just, like, as time went on and he made more and more films, it was just him sharpening his pencil to get to, like, while you can still appreciate the different eras of John Waters, he's just finessing what he's really good at and how he wants to story tell. And it's just this, I feel like this is what kind of blasted us into a, like a new era. Like I feel like hairspray and we'll talk about it a little bit. It was kind of like a bit of a, a bit of a bridge. Well, this is, I mean, it's complicated and it's sad because this is the first film he made after divine died. Yeah. So there's a question of what would this have film, what would this film have looked like had divine been involved in it? And it seemed like at this time there was kind of a split with the original dreamlanders. And I know that Edith Massey also died and David Lockery also died. So I'm not, totally clear on the timelines of that. I I mean, I could be, I didn't look it up. That's bad reporting from me. Mm. Um, but you know, there's a real shift here where there's like a new cast of people and John Waters starts making movies where the leads don't tend to come back to his other movies. Yeah. Right. Like he never made another movie with Johnny Depp. He never made another movie with, um, Al- Amy Locaine. Now Ricky Lake, he does Tracy Lords pops up, I think in a couple of his other films, but there isn't this like, here's my core group and they're the stars. Well, like even um, Mink Stoll, she just is in like a quick like two minute scene. Yeah. And like, I don't know, maybe this exists somewhere out there and we just never saw it or looked for it. But it could also be like an out of grief thing. Of 100%. Like, I right? had this familial unit that we would all fuck around and make these punk rock movies together. Just do drugs. and Yeah. And I lost so many people yeah. that were a part of that family. I don't want to do that to myself again. Yeah. 
I don't want to create this family of people that I can just lose again. Well, and there's that shift too of like, it doesn't seem like, to my knowledge, these are like drug fueled movies like his other ones are, yeah. you know, like there's, there's a distinct shift, but it'd be, I think, remiss not to acknowledge that like, this is also the first film after Divine died and maybe he would never have made this film if Divine hadn't died or maybe he would have made this film, but it would have looked really different. Maybe Divine would have been the good girl. Yeah. And that would be a totally different movie. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's a sadness in this, despite the fact that I really, really love it. And just that, yeah, that like interesting thing of, I loved it when I was so young and it is so queer. And yet I wouldn't have had that language for it because it's not, overtly or literally or literally queer it's queer in sensibility yeah and when you watch john waters other films some which are so overtly queer like in your face middle finger this is who we are this is what we do leave if you don't like it and then to see that that sensibility is in this but like it's like just the underneath mm -hmm. it's kind of cool that i've loved this for so long we I think it might have been at my brother's wedding. We were talking about going to see Crybaby and he's like, man, Kai, me and you watched that all the time together. Then he just starts quoting lines. He's like, my daddy was the alphabet bomber. <laughs> <laughs> Electricity makes me crazy. <laughs> like, you know, it, my brother and I would, we would watch this movie on repeat and we would like quote the lines together, which is such a weird, it's so funny that it was my brother that I watched this with. Yeah. Like, we just loved it. We loved it the way we loved Clue. Like, my brother and I le really liked these weird, witty films with queer sensibility, and we just quoted them nonstop. So it was so special to see it. It was missing some of my favorite lines, and I couldn't figure out why. I tried to search it up afterwards, and I don't know why those lines aren't in this. It must be, like, an extended cut, and that's the only version I've seen. Mm. But it's, like, the part I quote all the time about Ovaltine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It wasn't in it. It's so weird. Like, I love that line, Wanda. Do you want some Ovaltine? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that was disappointing. That was a big sad. I was so looking forward to seeing that on the yeah, big screen. Yeah, no kidding. Um, a couple of just, like, quick things that I probably talked about in our previous episode where we covered Crybaby is just, like, this is so fucking funny. Oh, yeah. It's, it is so good. It's so hilarious. Made even more hilarious by an audience that is all in on how hilarious it is. The music is is killer. It's so good. Um, and like, even despite the pee-pee-poo-poo -poo of it all that is Johnny Depp, he's as babely as ever in this. And I also think that one of my favorite parts in this whole thing, and if you've listened to our show before, you know that we stand a, Will a Willem Dafoe. Oh, yeah. And his cameo is excellent. And I actually wish that he was in more John Waters because I feel like he fits right in. Oh, I agree. I would love to. I mean, John Waters is making a new movie. Um, I would like to read the book that that he wrote that it's based on, but I would love for Willem Dafoe to be a key player in it. Absolutely. It's or Keanu Reeves or Samuel L. Jackson. Just help me with my stats. <laughs> yeah, but th this, uh, yeah, like like I said off the top, this movie has just been elevated by this experience of watching this series. And it just sits in a new place in my heart. And I'm so happy that we got to see it in the theater. Is it a five out of five for you now? It might be. Four and a half at least. How does Crybaby make you feel? More appreciative of its craft and humor than ever before. 
How does it make you feel? Just an abundant joy for this sexy, campy, beloved film from my youth. I really love it. Yeah, it's great. It's hilarious. So good. Speaking of. Oh, man. Okay, this was the one for me. This was the highlight of the series and my favorite film of the series. It's a comedy crime thriller from 1994, and it's called Serial Mom. It stars Kathleen Turner as mom, Sam Waterston as dad, Ricky Lake as Misty, Matthew Lillard as Chip, um, Justin Whalen as Scotty, Patricia Dunnick as Birdie, and Mink Stoll as Dottie. And I gotta say, respect to Matthew Lillard to getting to play with so many iconic directors for being Matthew Lillard. Like being <laughs> like working with David Lynch in Twin Peaks, John Waters here, Wes Craven in Scream. Is like, he in Twin Peaks? Yeah, he's in the return. I don't remember that. Yeah. He's also in um Five Nights at Freddy's. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe we'll watch that. Yeah. And maybe I like we'll Matthew cover Lillard. I mean, Shaggy, come on. Yeah, I mean, just like good on him, just for being like goofy guy, goofy 90s guy. Yeah. Um, synopsis. She's a perfect all-American parent, a great cook and homemaker, a devoted recycler and a woman who will literally kill to keep her children happy. What do you think of Serial Mom? So it was disappointing that the theater wasn't as full as Crybaby because this movie fucks. <laughs> like, oh, it's so good. It was so damn fun. We actually, this was kind of a sweet experience because we went with three friends who don't know each other. (laughs) Right. And we did it. It was really funny because we staggered our seatings. It was like you and then our friend Elliot and then our friend Haley and then me and then our friend Alex. Like you and I didn't sit beside each other, I think, to just ensure that everybody got to sit by somebody they knew. And you also wanted to be on the aisle because you're you. I got I got the long long gams, so I like to let them stretch. But yes, I, yeah, I forgot it was this movie that <laughs> we, we sat. Yeah, weirdly. and when our friend Elliot, um, they got their last, and there was just an empty seat beside you, and I think they were like, "Oh, is like Kylie just like sitting over talking with like those other people?" And they were like, "Where do I sit?" And we were like, "Oh, here." And they go, "Oh, the two Elliots together." <laughs> I wonder if it was a thought in anyone's mind. It's like, oh, they must be fighting. <laughs> we were we were just trying to make sure everybody was by somebody they knew. Um, and you wanted your little leg room. Anyway, it was really sweet to see this with like those three people who we really care about and who all were like such perfect people to see this movie with. Like we were all laughing so much. This movie is so damn fun. Yeah, it's... You know, I, I'm I'm not saying this to talk down any of the other films that we saw in the series, but this is just the John Waters sweet spot for me. Like everything I feel culminated from what I like from his earlier films to what I like from his later films. And it, I feel like it all just coalesced into this amazing film that I wish I had started watching when I was much, much younger. Like the way that you discussed feeling on the show when we covered Little Shop of Horrors of how mm. I grew up watching it as a little kid and I just watched it on repeat, you could see yourself and wish that you for yourself were able to do that as well because it just there's a feeling and a vibe to it that you know as a younger person you would have loved it so much. And that's how I felt about Serial Mom. Yeah, I, I get that because, I mean, this is the most like horror comedy of any of them. 
Mm. Like she's a serial killer. Yeah. But it's also like such a clear 90s film in like the way of like an Edward Scissorhands or, you know, like where it's like critiquing suburbia, but from within suburbia. Yeah. Whereas all of his other films, including, I mean, Hairspray, maybe a little bit more like critiquing like the mainstream from within the mainstream. But even then, I don't think uh, Tracy's family is wealthy. No. Right. Whereas, yeah. And even in Crybaby, they're, they're like not a family with wealth. Right. So yeah. he's still kind of working like with the misfits. Mm-hmm. Whereas here he's not with the misfits here. He's with the like normies. Yeah. And critiquing them from within it and being like, actually the normies aren't even normal. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and it's just, it's just so good. And Ka- Kathleen Turner is phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, like, I kind of fell in love with her. Yeah. Like, I mean, everyone in this is fire, but Kathleen Turner, most of all, I don't know what it is, but like, I kind of like have a crush on Kathleen Turner. Well, she's, <laughs> so this is, this is a, well, it won't be a spoiler because this is coming out after our regular episode. We covered across the universe mm-hmm. and the character of Sadie in across the universe is really sexy. And I think a similar way to Kathleen Turner where there's like a handsomeness. Yeah. There's like a tall, strong, broad, and she's going to take command. Handsome. And she's also got like this deep smoky voice. It's pretty sexy. It's like, a, well, I was, I was just going to say it's like Jessica Rabbit, but yeah, she, <laughs> she's the voice of Jessica. Bada boom. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> but I get it. I, I think she's, I think she's a babe. Yeah. And she just commands the fucking screen. Whenever she's in a scene, all eyes are on her. And it's just so fun. The humor is so top tier. Or there's like a really fucking funny bit with like a letter that's made up of letters cut out of magazines. And our buddy Elliot and a few other of our buds got to go to L.A. recently and they went there's a whole fucking John Waters exhibit at the Academy in L.A. right now and they're just sending us pictures yeah. and it's just like <laughs> you need to stop because I'm fucking so jealous but it was also so sweet because there was a bunch of photos sent of like stuff from the crybaby movie because Elliot knows that I really love crybaby and then I just get one of this note like the yeah. original <laughs> note from this movie which was totally for you. Yeah. Like that text was for me to show you. And yeah. I thought that was so, it just made me feel really loved and it was very sweet, even though I was also very jealous. <laughs> yeah. Um. It's yeah. Like this was just, it's so fun. And like I said, even though I didn't watch this growing up and as a little kid, it made me feel like a little kid watching something that I wasn't supposed to be watching. Totally. And I will rewatch this time and time again. Uh, I'd like to buy it. I'd like to own it. This is also one of those movies that like is literally an anytime movie. Like it would be perfect for a matinee, but also perfect for a Saturday night. Oh, totally. Absolutely. It's got whatever you want in it. It's also one of the things I love about this movie. This would be a great movie to watch when you're just having a week where everybody's driving you insane. Yes. In the same way that like playing the untitled goose game is great when you're feeling that way. (laughs) Yeah. Because like she's literally killing people for being annoying. Yeah, it's just she's such a good representation of that little voice in all of our heads that when people are just fucking awful or the world is just a mess, that it's that voice you don't listen to because it you shouldn't. <laughs> but this is what would happen if you did listen to that that voice inside of yourself. 
And then you just made it really fun and campy and hilarious. Oh, yeah. It's so it's so, so good. It's so, so funny. But it's also really smart. Like the satire is really smart. It's really biting. Um, this is the movie I actually had the most interesting trivia that I found. Hmm. Um, so one of the things I read and I was like, I don't know how trustworthy this is because we haven't listened to the audio commentary on the Blu-ray. But according to the Internet, on the audio commentary for the Blu-ray, John Waters says this is his favorite film he's ever made mm. and what he thinks is his best film. But he also said that in the live show we saw. So he said this like two weeks, like a week ago. He yeah. said the best movie I've ever made is Serial Mom. So that's what he thinks. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, so I won't argue with Listen him. to the man. Um, this also was Matthew Lillard's first major role in a film. It was his second film he ever made, but his first like significant role in a film. Just like two, it would have been two years later, I think, that he would have made Scream. Yeah, so he's this is really early on for him. I think this is just the cutest thing ever. So I guess when he got to set, he kind of made note that Kathleen Turner knew everyone's names already from looking at the call sheets. So she would just come up and be like, oh, hi, Matthew, or hi, Ricky. And he asked her why she had learned everybody's name. And she said, oh, honey, that's the first thing you do. <laughs> so it's just so, that's, so sweet. That's really sweet. Um couple other cool things. This is the, there's a prominently featured video store in this. And that's like the local video store that John Waters would go to in Baltimore. Oh, that's awesome. So that's really cute and sweet. I love that Matthew Lillard works there too, because he's kind of the Randy from Scream in this. Totally. Yeah. I love that. Uh, this is also just like so great. So there's this lovely, hilarious moment in the film where Kathleen Turner's character is driving in like a big van and her family's all trying to find her and she drives past in the van and sees them and gives them a little wave like a little innocent wave so that was improvised by Kathleen Turner and John Waters didn't even notice it when he edited it or when he shot it that's so funny and the first time he ever noticed it was watching it in a screening when people laughed and he was like that is brilliant that's so <laughs> funny known about it it's I love that he didn't even catch it in editing he just like blasted through that's like all right yeah let's go and then Oh, it's so smart. And then um, it's so good. Like there's so many like little moments like that or when she's at the concert and she turns around, and sees her family. She's like, oh, hey, <laughs> it's so funny. There's a bloody, innovative scene where the movie Annie is playing in the background. Mm -hmm. John Waters paid $60,000 to have Annie play. Because they were, they charged way more than they normally would because of the content of the film and the content of John Waters' previous films. Uh, They're like, if you want to use this, you're paying this much for it. And he was like, well, that's what I want to yeah, use. Yeah, fuck you. Here's, so, here's your money. Okay, and it's been a minute, but I'm bringing back, is this trivia fact interesting or not? Oh, uh, yes. Okay. It's from IMDb. This is a quote from IMDb. The director and the second and third build actors' names all relate to water. John Waters... Sam Waterston, and Ricky Lake. I like it. All right. That means 30 out of 69 people find this interesting. Nice. That's all I got for you. That's this, good. This movie's great. I like that Mink Stoll had more of a role in this than she did in Crybaby because her character's so... I love when Mink Stoll plays someone stuffy. Yeah, that's my absolute favorite. I love when Divine goes to 11 and I love when Mink Stoll is... Just so wound up. <laughs> <laughs> She's, oh, how dare you? Like, 
She's hilarious. I love when her and Kathleen Turner play off each other in this. Um, this is, yeah, I think this is my favorite after Female Trouble. I think this is my favorite Mink Stoll performance. She's so it's good in so this. Good. The whole movie's so good. I can't wait to keep watching this for the rest of my life. Yeah. How to make you feel? Just like uproariously humored. I thought it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Yeah. You? Uh, just so, so happy to have discovered this absolute gem of a romp. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, now we go early. We go early. It's actually funny that you said Serial Mom is the sweet spot between John Waters' early films and later films because that is the latest John Waters film you've ever seen. You haven't seen anything past Serial Mom. Good point. Yeah, good point. He does have films past Serial Mom, but we have not seen them. Consider me checked. I mean, you know of his later films, but you haven't seen them. So we saw Multiple Maniacs. This was the earliest film of his that uh, Metro played, and therefore it's the earliest film of his that we have seen. It was uh, released in 1970. It stars Divine as Lady Divine. David Lockery as Mr. David, Marion Vivian Pierce as Bonnie, Mink Stoll as Mink, Cookie Mueller as Cookie Divine, and Edith Massey as Edith. Synopsis. The synopsis is funny. John Waters' gloriously grotesque second feature is replete with all manner of depravity, from robbery to murder to one of cinema's most memorably blasphemous moments. Made on a shoestring budget in Waters' native Baltimore, with the filmmaker taking on nearly every technical task, this gleeful mockery of the peace and love ethos of its era features the cavalcade of perversion, a traveling show mounted by a troop of misfits whose shocking proclivities are topped only by those of their leader, the glamour-than-glam, larger-than-life divine, out for blood after, after discovering her her lover's affair it's i mean that i feel like that's very carnival barker and it fits right in with oh, totally. the content of the movie so aside from crybaby which is just like such a nostalgic classic for me this was actually my favorite of what we watched it's it's so different from serial mom and i love serial mom so much but if i think early films this is my favorite yeah i think female trouble was yours of the early films that we watched yeah. but i really loved this what did you think of Multiple Maniacs? And, I, and just unpacking that too, I feel like Female Trouble leans into some of the silliness that I like a little bit more than this does. And that's probably why that puts it above this, uh, puts it above 
multiple maniacs or pink flamingos for me. But I, I mean, first off, it just speaks to how much of a powerhouse divine is that in multiple movies of John Waters, divine is just divine in the, in these movies. Like that's, yeah. <laughs> it's just divine being herself. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just more classic John Waters madness. It's more fucking sticking it to the man, flipping the bird to everyone saying, look at me. It's yeah. Like I, I imagine it's just like John Waters just being like, Hey, look at me. And then he just like looks, looks around <laughs> and then she's like, fuck you. <laughs> well, this more than pink flamingos and female trouble really just felt to me like a bunch of friends fucking around and finding out. Oh shit. Yeah. Like the whole, like just put on the camera, do some shit and we'll figure it out. Like the whole opening sequence when they're in the park, it's just like, let's just hang out in the park and fuck around. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I just, I loved that, that vibe. Like this really feels like an independent film. I mean, the, Opening and closing credits are just like typed, I believe, paper that like is being pushed with a person's hand. Or it's, or it's like a transparency or yeah, something. something like that where it's just <laughs> yeah. being like, like they're filming a piece of paper or something that they pull down because they had no budget. So right. Good. It's so funny. I, you know, I love a black and white film like this is I mean, and granted, I haven't seen, I believe, his first film, which is Mondo Trasho. But this feels like the clerks of John Waters, right? Yeah, that's a that's a good comparison. And I'm just, I'm so grateful for shit like this because this is the kind of stuff, like a clerks, that inspires people to pick up a camera and find their friends and be like, let's make some fucking art. Yeah, because this feels, this this film, it feels like I could do it. Not in a, because it was easy, but it feels like if I wanted to, I could. Yeah. Because like you don't need all the money and all the time to do it. And you don't you just need, need friends and a vision. And you don't need to fit into any of the boxes that have been preset by films or anything that's yeah. come before. This film doesn't really have a narrative. <laughs> yeah. But like the fact that you can make that and that people will go and see it and then it'll end up in the fucking Criterion collection. Like there is room for your voice if you want to make room for your voice. And this film... I don't want to shit on Pink Flamingos because I did like, there's parts of it I loved. Yeah. And I know it's so beloved by so many people. Which is totally cool. Totally cool. But this movie actually had me the most gagged. Mm. Like way more than Pink Flamingos where I would just like look to you and then my mouth would just be like, oh <laughs> my goodness. But in a way that I loved, like I was like, that is incredible. That is so funny. But also I can't believe he's getting away with this. Yeah. Like, there's a scene in a church. Let me tell you. <laughs> One of the wildest things I have ever seen on screen. And Mink Stoll continues to be hilarious. There's also this scene where she's just like clearly waiting for her lines. <laughs> and it keeps like zooming in on her. Yeah. And I loved it so much. Well, and it's just, it's actually, there's some real good, thoughtful filmmaking in this like that whole sequence with mink stole and divine when they're leaving the church it's just like a really long one take walk and talk which is like shit i love in movies oh yeah is long one take shit. well that's the thing like when you when you watch a clerks or and i'm my mind is just failing me of, of like other like really low budget first films from directors who have gone on to do really great work 
sure there are others. Eraser head? Yeah, eraser head would be a great one. Um all in black and white. All in black and <laughs> white. I mean, think budget, right? Yeah. These films have gone on to become iconic and the filmmakers have gone on to make more work because there's clear vision and craft in these first films, even when they had no money. Yeah. Right. There's so much in this. And I'm like, that is brilliant. That is great filmmaking. That's smart. Um, It was really a bummer. This was the smallest crowd of all the movies that we went to. And I was like, actually, I really love this movie. It's such a such a shame that fewer people are here. And in reading about it, like, it's just such a. I'm making a film with no money. The apartment that it's filmed in was John Waters real apartment. <laughs> the opening scene was done in front of John Waters parents house. Mm. Like they just the, that opening credits on paper. And then I guess John Waters has like really lovingly thumbs up the restoration because there's additional credits added in the restoration and they did it in the same style. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which is just like really such a tribute to, to what was, you know, the conditions from in which he made this movie. And then I love the story that um, the opening of this movie, the first time anybody saw it, was in a rented out church basement in Baltimore. Of course it was. Like, it's just, I don't know, this movie just inspires me on a creative level. Yeah. Like, while this isn't my favorite of the early John Waters stuff we watched, I think that this is his best of his early stuff that we saw. You liked it more than Pink Flamingos, though, I take it. Yes. Yeah. You liked it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I loved it. And there's a thing at the end that like, I just don't want to ruin. But just out of nowhere, this like absolutely bananas thing happens. And you're just like, what? <laughs> like, what even the heck? Um, that's a, I think that's the beauty of a John Waters movie full stop is that you will you will not see what's coming always. No, it is a roller coaster. And I mean, he so he said that his inspiration his main inspirations for this movie were Salvador Dali's artwork, Jack Smith, um, who I actually didn't look up who that is. I'm assuming an artist, um, a postcard he saw for Provincetown, Massachusetts <laughs> and being high on LSD and cannabis. Those were his inspirations. There you go. I loved this movie. I think it's so, so inspiring. So punk. So queer so great i definitely want to watch it again yeah i agree how did it make you feel just appreciative of the filth i feel like the filth spiral is one that you both go down and up in you know yeah i feel like pink flamingos maybe a bit too far but this is the sweet spot in that spiral for me okay the next you one you didn't ask me how i feel sorry <laughs> how did it make you feel um, it made me feel part of the in crowd. Like it made me feel mm. that I was a part of this like queer history that has existed for 53 years through this queer anarchist satire. Yeah. Like it's a fucking old movie. <laughs> and yet I feel like it's made for me too. Yeah. And that's, you know, I've, I, I felt that feeling just by watching all of those films. Like I feel like I'm now part and then getting to see him live coming off of watching all these films, it's just like, I feel like I'm part of this cool little club now. Yeah. And that's really cool. Really cool. Okay. The next one is a, a biggie for John Waters for sure. And it's the comedy drama family film from 1988, Hairspray. It stars Sonny Bono as Franklin Von Tussle. There's some fun last names in this. 
Ruth Brown as Motormouth Mabel uh, Divine as Edna Turnblad slash Arvin Hodgepile. <laughs> Debbie Harry, yeah, Blondie herself as a, a Velma Von Tussle. Ricky Lake as Tracy Turnblad. Jerry Stiller as Wilbur Turnblad. Vitamin C as Amber Von Tussle. That's the thing I wanted to surprise you with. <laughs> like graduation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Michael St. Gerard as Link Larkin. Leslie Ann Powers as Penny Pingleton. Uh, and Mink Stoll as Tammy. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Mink Stoll. Synopsis. A pleasantly plump teenager teaches 1962 Baltimore a thing or two about integration after landing a spot on a local TV dance show. What'd you think of Hairspray? So like I said, I've seen, I had seen Hairspray like back in later high school, but I don't really remember it. And I definitely like wasn't ready for how much it still is in the vein of his older films. It is really, like you said, this and I, and I even think the the last film that we're going to talk about are kind of this in between of him getting these more mainstream actors and having bigger budgets and making these films that are quote unquote more accessible. And yet I still think all his films are still so biting and smart and queer. Yeah. It, it's very much, I mean, having not seen all of his films, but it feels like John Waters has broken into decades. Like yeah. the seventies is this very like middle finger, black and white, fuck you, punk rock. The 80s seems to be his kind of transitional into more like still retaining some of that 70s vibe while transitioning into his more 90s accessible, bigger stars kind of thing. And then the 90s is just that that's our sweet spot, at least of kind of more commercial films. Yeah. And he has so of his filmography we for feature films there's only his first film mondo trasho we haven't seen he has a film in between female trouble and polyester called desperate living we haven't seen and then it's his three most recent films so pecker which came out in 1998 and then cecil b demented which came out in 2000 and his last film was a dirty shame in 2004 so he hasn't made a film in 20 years but he now has a film that sounds like it's you know getting steam and then that's going to be so so exciting to see to see that and see who's in it um hairspray at the time that i watched it when it was in prep for the musical i think it was very like i watched it i'm done with it and it's so not like the musical at all no like any of that sensibility that john waters sensibility is just scrubbed right out of it in the musical and now watching it i'm like oh this is so much better yeah, like I I didn't I wasn't like you and I didn't do my homework going into seeing the 2007 musical. But I went to see it and thinking I haven't revisited it since, but in my mind after watching this version and then thinking about the 2007 version, the 2007 version is just like squeaky clean. Yeah, it's, which is so not John Waters. No. The the word of the day here is filth. <laughs> and a squeaky clean representation of a work that he put together seems incorrect. Yeah. It's, I mean, apparently he has a cameo in the 2007 version, but not even interested in rewatching it. And I also feel like, so Broadway renditions of Hairspray and then, and then the film 
they like famously cast a man in the role of Edna as a tribute to Divine, but I actually think that's a huge disservice to Divine. I think they should cast a drag queen. Yeah. <laughs> like spe- so yes, a drag and a drag queen can be any gender, right? But specifically somebody who is in the queer scene who does drag, who isn't just a man playing the role of a woman to check a box to say that we're honoring someone especially if that man is john travolta yeah not cool right um this though was the first film we saw in the series where divine's not playing like the just like manic glamorous but like not glamorous but so glamorous character where she's the stuffy one like she's the mom who is like thinks her little darling is getting in with the wrong crowd and it was so fun to see Divine in a different role like that and such a sadness that she didn't get that she didn't get to keep or he rather like Divine used he him pronouns mm-hmm. um, didn't get to continue to grow and shift the way John Waters did. Yeah, because I think Divine would have done that with John Waters. Oh, totally. Because I feel like this is the first role in this in the series of films that we watched where Divine wasn't cranked up to 11. Mm hmm. And there is more subtlety in Divine's performance. Yeah. And I agree with you. I would have loved to have seen that continue and to see them both grow together. Yeah, it was just kind of sad to to know that as we watch all of these films and to have appreciated what Divine brings to this Dreamlanders team and to know that this is kind of where it stops. Yeah, because you and I had a few conversations of just like, you know, I can totally see in subsequent films where Divine could possibly have fit in, in Crybaby, in Serial Mom, and then likely in the films that came after that that we haven't seen. It And it's just so sad because, again, going back to the word of powerhouse that Divine is, that it just would have added so much more to whatever divine was a part of in the future. Completely agree. This though was the first film with Ricky Lake, who I believe has been in every John Waters film after this. And he said such a nice thing about Ricky Lake after this film, right? It was after this film. Yeah. Where he said like, your life's going to change. Yeah. Like be ready for it. And, um, Ricky Lake had some bad experiences to do with this film that I don't think were necessarily anybody's fault, but were like a, just a sign of the times, like um, something about like the hair dye that she had to use, like caused long-term problems. Um, there, There's some things like that that have just been difficult for her later in her life um, that she doesn't attribute to John Waters, but just like, lack of safety and that kind of thing on sets in the eighties. Mm. Um, her and John Waters continue to be really close. She came to his, uh, Hollywood walk of fame. Um, they did a really beautiful, like sit down conversation around that time and talked about hairspray. And she wore like a really special, like tribute outfit to his Hollywood walk of fame. That was like homaging hairspray. So I think that's really cool. And, She's really great in Serial Mom and she's really great in Crybaby and she plays different roles in all of that. And this was kind of the moment where I started to see how much of John Waters' films are coalition work. Like 
he's a queer man, but his films have trans women. They have drag queens. They have people of color. They have like they explore like socioeconomic issues. They explore gentrification. They explore. um... Oh, there's something that was on my mind. But even like with Ricky Lake, you know, and and I'm wanting to cast a, to use the language of the film, a pleasantly plump teenager and to have her be the star and her be amazing. And, you know, that coalition work with like different types of bodies that we have through Divine and through all this time where like Divine is the sexy one. Um, I just think is so cool. And something that is a standout for me across the whole series is that John Waters created a group of people who are working in coalition to say, fuck you to oppressive forces. Yeah. And it's not just a bunch of gay men. It's like all sorts of people like Mink Stoll is, I don't believe she identifies as queer that I know of, but like these are her people. Yeah. You know, and I just think that's so beautiful. And I love Ricky Lake being like the new addition here who continues on. And then of course, like having Tracy Lords in Serial Mom and in Crybaby, there's this coalition with sex workers, right? Such interesting ways that he just creates a space for people to bond through giving a middle finger to the like forces that have continued to harm them. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, it's fucking incredible and it's super inspiring and awesome. I will say on the opposite end of that in hairspray specifically, this is, this does have a political commentary to it but it can be a little clumsy. Yeah. I mean, I think he's trying his best. Absolutely. This is going to come up when we talk about his live show. And I think the Broadway and then the subsequent film based on Hairspray tries to take that and make it like the squeaky clean, wokest of the woke version of it for like a big pat on the back. And I like commend John Waters for trying to do it not in that way, mm-hmm. but in retrospect, looking at it from a 2023 perspective, there's a couple missteps, Yeah, but there's certainly like coalition work happening in that and the intentions are yes. in the right place, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, One of your favorite parts of this was Jerry Stiller plays the dad and there's a lot of like, he's not meant to be where your eyes go in the shot, <laughs> but if you do go to him, he's doing some hilarious background work. Yeah, <laughs> it's so good. And like, one of the funniest things in this movie is Mink Stoll holding up a sign that says falsies <laughs> and then like pointing out people that have fake boobs. Yeah. Mink Stoll continues to be my fave fave. Like I'm obsessed with her. I love her so much. I think she's like the goat um, and she's so great in this. Vitamin C, which is just hilarious as Amber Von Tussle. She's so hateable. Yeah, perfect villain. And then her foil in this, like Peggy, or not necessarily foil, but this like kind of other side of it. Um, Peggy's one of the best characters in any of these movies. She's such a like OG best friend. Yeah, yeah. And I love her like hair that she has. She'd make a great Halloween costume. Um, And this is kind of the start, or maybe not the start, because the next film is before this, and I think it's doing this as well, but Serial Mom, this, and then the next film we're going to talk about really like, Middle finger to suburbia from within suburbia. And I, I love that. And I think that's that's really fun. Yeah. Um, and I will say too, like Ricky Lake is awesome in this as well. Like the character of Tracy, Tracy Turnblad is just such a beacon of light and kindness and hopefulness and just like bright eyed, bushy tail. Like I can't believe I'm getting to like do this kind of thing. Like, And that's just such a 
great character and like a bit of a turn for John Waters in terms of a main character in one of his films. Yeah, that she is that, but not in a satirical way. Like yeah. it's a genuine way. And and she supports other people and she, you know, commits to social justice and she gets the guy and people see her as a hero and find her sexy and just and, for- and not in a like wink wink way in a genuine way and in like a genuine john waters way of like just being yourself gets you there gets you there so cool and i mean so thinking too about just like the work he does outside of his films too when this premiered and this was you know this is the first and maybe only film of his that's also in the family genre (laughs) um the premiere for this film only cost 25 dollars a piece and all of that went to AIDS Action Baltimore. So he like used the premiere of this to donate money to like support people trying to fight the fight against the government and in the AIDS crisis. That's so cool. And I think that's awesome. Yeah, no, that's great. We also didn't get to see this one in the theater because I was feeling sick and you should stay home when you're sick. Um, I think it would have been a bit of a different experience. I agree. Maybe I think we might have. I think we liked it, but we would have liked it like just a touch more. I agree. And I, yeah, like I don't think I realized either that this wasn't really a musical in a musical sense. Like it has some real good bops in it. Yeah, Cry Baby is a musical. This is not. Yeah. And like the, the 2007 one, I would say is pulling more from the Broadway show. Yes. It, it, it's just, it is just the Broadway show. Okay. So yeah, like, so I didn't really expect that from this, but I still liked the music in this because yeah, it, sure. it is like that 50s, 60s doo-woppy shit that is that thing you do. It's snappy. Snappy. How did Hairspray make you feel? Made me feel a warm fondness for this more accessible John Waters entry. Hmm. You? Just a head bopping sense of fun. Hey, last film of the Masterclass in Filth. Not the last John Waters film we'll ever see, but the last one for this rad rap. Um, it is called Polyester. It's a 1981 comedy film. Stars Divine as Francine Fishpaw. Tab Hunter as Todd Tomorrow. Edith Massey as Cuddles Kavinsky. Great names. David Sampson as Elmer Fishpaw. Mary Garlington as Lulu Fishpaw. Ken King as Dexter Fishpaw. And Mink Stoll as Sandra Sullivan. I can't help but think that the Daniels are a little influenced by John Waters in naming a character Deirdre Bobeirdre. <laughs> Gotta be. <laughs> Synopsis for Polyester is a suburban housewife's world falls apart when she finds that her pornographer husband is serially unfaithful to her. Her daughter is pregnant and her son is suspected of being the foot fetishist who's been breaking local women's feet. The fuck? <laughs> what did you think of Polyester? I mean, first of all, we saw this in Odorama. Odorama. Um, so basically, and they've done this forever. In the theater, they handed you scratch cards that were... Each, uh, it was numbered. And throughout the film, there'd be a number that would prompt you up on the screen based on whatever is happening in the scene. And you would scratch that corresponding number on the card and then it would smell like whatever was going on in the scene. Super fun. Yeah, apparently um, the newer ones aren't as smelly as the older ones and they just don't make them like they used to, according to John Waters. And I get that because sometimes I was like, that doesn't really smell as rank as I was worried it was going to smell based on what I knew this was going to be. <laughs> um, but it was it was fun. And you could just 
sometimes you get here like the groan in the audience is it's like oh i'm about to smell a fart yeah as they like all like scratch the card it's so funny though and just like takes the filth to another level when so much of the film like it knows that it's playing into this odorama angle so so much of it is about smell and there's a lot of like kind of kind of like red herrings a little bit of like you think you're going to yeah. be like, oh, I'm, I'm, am I going to have to smell this? <laughs> but it never ends up coming to fruition. Yeah. And it's just so, that's so funny to have a film led by smell. <laughs> and I believe the Criterion version of this comes with Odorama. Like it's. Oh, hell yeah. That's which awesome. is really, really fun. I thought this was a really great one just to give like another thumbs up to how Metro planned this out. I thought it was a really smart one to end this master class, class in filth on because it feels like the film that ties all of the films together. Yeah. Like this more than hairspray feels like the bridge between the seventies and the nineties. Yeah. I walk back my earlier statement. I agree with you. Like this is, this is the first like divine is not quite playing as, as like subdued as the care, as the character that's going to be in hairspray, but divine is the fussy one in this. And divine goes, I feel like, Divine goes to 11 in this, but in a way that is different than the way that she would go to 11 in previous John Waters films. Yeah, like this film still has that chaotic sensibility that's really, really there in the 70s. Still has that big middle finger to like suburban America, but it's now in suburban America. But it feels a little bit more grounded and a little bit more like with a clear plot line. Mm-hmm. but not quite as clear as a plot line as we'll jump to once we get to hairspray and, and from there. Yeah. Right. Like it's just, it's still pretty wild. Like listening to that synopsis. Yeah. Um, and this is where I start to get really sad where I just so wish divine had gotten to play more roles like this in Edna Turnblad because she was so fun as like the tittering housewife. Who's like, Oh, how dare you be like that? I just want you home for dinner. Right. Yeah. But then also go and like just ape shit sometimes yeah and then here edith massey is like the best friend so cute yeah so so cute yeah it just it's silly it's over the top it's another john waters romp it revels in its madness but it starts doing new things even just like just in filmmaking like I feel John Waters starting to dip his toes into doing interesting things with the camera or like kind of dreamy sequency kind of stuff. So this is a thing that I think this is actually a lot of our friends. This is their favorite John Waters film. Um, and there's something that I think is missing for us kind of like when we saw suitable flesh at Northwest fear fest. And it was like, I feel like this would be a whole nother experience if we were well versed in the films of Stuart Gordon. Right. So I guess this film is a like, both homage and a like subversion of films made by a director named Douglas Kirk, um, who made what were called women's pictures, um, which I don't think you or you know you or I have ever seen a woman's picture. <laughs> so this was a genre that became popular in the 1950s and 1960s that featured bored, unfulfilled, or otherwise troubled women, usually middle-aged suburban housewives who find release or escape through the arrival of a handsome younger man. So this was like a genre of films. I think it's like playing in like soap opera land Um, and specifically the group of them made by this filmmaker, Douglas Kirk. And I guess there's like flourishes that come directly from his films. And we're just like, that was just all lost on us. Oh yeah. There's not on the in crowd. No. So that's, 
I think that would just elevate it in a way that that we were missing, despite the fact that I really liked it. Well, I mean, I can already see the humor in that. Like it's if the trope is that it's a like gorgeous younger man. I think the younger man that shows up is just like the same age, (laughs) (laughs) if not older. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's like that loving homage while also being like, I'm going to do my own thing. Yeah, right. It's still a John Waters movie. Still a John Waters movie. Um, this also was his first movie to get an R rating instead of an X rating. Every other film was X rated. Like before this? Before this, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and it was his first one set in the suburbs instead of in like a bohemian or lower cr- class neighborhood, right? Um, so just it's a shift for him while still feeling like a clear lineage with like those 70s films. Yeah, and like this is full me just speculating but like his earlier films are just such a such a lens into his group and his misfits and bringing the world into that whereas now he's entering the world of everybody else yeah 100 percent. and this feels like like i said more than hairspray like it's still kind of doing both yeah um, like those two kids in this, like the foot stomper and the like get sent to the nuns, like they're just like pure hyperbolic farce. Like the daughter's always like, huh, huh, huh. Like she's always like posing. Like it's just wild, which to me, that's that really 70s, like the films he made in the 70s, that sensibilities in here. Whereas I didn't really see that in Hairspray. Yeah. Like it starts to be, we're not being hyperbolic anymore or yes. not as much. Yeah. More subtle hyperbole, perhaps. Yeah, specifically in Hairspray, and then we were kind of returned to that. To a different kind of hyperbole. Yeah. With in Cry, Cry, Baby, Cry Baby and, and Serial Mom. Mom. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I, I kind of like that in that he was like trying to bring everybody into his world, and then he just entered everybody else's world. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm going to bring my people into your world to reveal what's fucked about your world. Yeah, I and like, again, it's just a different form of being fucking punk baby (laughs) so punk i also love this description of this movie that somebody put onto imdb trivia because it's like yeah they described this as the first mainstream overground non-underground movie directed by john waters (laughs) (laughs) which okay yeah i get it john waters is fucking punk he is truly how did polyester make you feel this was just the thing that cemented that I am all in on the John Waters madness. I want to see his other films. Yeah, I'd like to. I know that there's one that has more chicken death. But like I you do said, still want to see it. We'll be ready for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How'd it make you feel? It made me feel once again enamored by the chaotically sharp satire. Like He's just smart and he's punk and he's queer as fuck. And, and I think that that's, yeah. that's the thing that just cements it all at the end is that he's really witty and he's really smart yeah and i think there's a version of these films that if he weren't those things would just be it would just it would just be gross (laughs) (laughs) i mean they are gross but in the funniest way but like gross in an intelligent way yeah that's just i so appreciate this guy so let's talk a little bit then about getting to see him live like this is just something that doesn't happen for Edmontonians you know we just we don't get big name 
directors. We've had a couple of really cool experiences in the last year with Kyle Edward Ball's Skinamarink and with um, The Last Video Store, which we covered on Northwest Fear Fest Rad Rap, because they were made by people from or currently living in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. And so, like, there's a hometown premiere of it. But we don't get what TIFF gets. We don't get what people who go to movies in L.A. get or in New York or at, like, Cannes or anything like that. We just don't get big name directors and actors coming here and doing Q&As or events. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. And like we even learned through like some of like one of our buds through Edmonton International Film Festival, like there are just some places or like some distributors that feel like Edmonton's not a viable place for films. And And so like work needs to be done to change that. Right. Yeah. And I think Metro is working hard to do that. And I so appreciate it. So the fact that we were one of two Canadian cities that, that got to see this show and John Waters wasn't really doing it anywhere else um, is really exciting. We got VIP tickets, which was super fun. The show is called Devil's Advocate. Um, and VIP, I think, was limited to 50 people, 25 people. Thanks. Yeah, I feel like it was I feel like it was 25. Yeah, it was pretty small. And so you got to stay for an extended, like more intimate Mm Q&A. And then you got a distanced selfie with John Waters, which we'll probably post tomorrow. And Um, a signed poster. And a signed poster. So it was really cool. We got there super early. Yeah, the show started at 7. We got there at 4.45. Yes. We met up with three of our friends um, to try and get the best seats possible, even though we were VIP and we did, we were front row, baby. Yeah. It's like, we were just, though you say John Waters was locking eyes with you throughout this whole thing. I I think, I think you two could have had a little friendship. It was like, it was kind of nuts. And this has happened to me a few times when we've gone to stuff where the performer will be telling a bit or answering a Q and a or something. And I'm not the one necessarily that asked the question or, am heavily participating but they'll just lock eyes with me and maintain eye contact like hard continuous eye contact with me while they're going on and i'm just like i appreciate this but like what's happening (laughs) (laughs) i love you (laughs) i should have mouthed it yeah i love you well you were we were wearing masks so oh (laughs) yeah i should have mouthed it with my eyes (laughs) john waters is um commendably very covid conscious and you know, we still wear masks mostly everywhere, um, but we think it's especially important to mask when the people you're with would like you to do that. Like, we think that's a matter of respect. Wearing a mask is not hard. Um, and, and so it's, it was pretty clear that he was COVID conscious. Yeah, he's not He like he wasn't going to sign anything um, because he doesn't want to touch anything that other people have touched. Uh, yeah, there was just a, and the fact that you're doing a distant selfie. So we thought if we're going to be in the front row, it's especially respectful to be wearing a mask because that's yeah that's what he would want. Um, so you you could have mouthed "I love you," but he wouldn't have wouldn't have heard it. The show itself, what did you think of his live show? I thought I thought it was great. I mean, I had I had a fun time with it. I you know, there's some jokes and bits that he had that didn't land for me, but there were some that really landed for me. Some of my favorite bits were actually just some of the in between bits where like he would finish a bit and he'd be like yeah i don't know something like that like <laughs> he would just get <laughs> yeah, like, a couple of moments where he's like i need to check my notes and then he'd like get out his glasses and- it was just like the in-between 
little glimpses of who John Waters is as a person, not a performer. Yeah. And I thought those were so sweet and endearing. I, I, I think we'd be friends like with him. him, honestly. I think we'd love him. He did, you know, I had a couple of friends who weren't sitting with us, but who saw it. And like, there was a couple jokes that they really didn't like. He kind of goes on at length about how he doesn't understand non-binary. Yeah. Um, But I also feel like, and he's clunky with it, kind of the way that there's some clunkiness around social justice for black folks in Hairspray, where he's like trying and there's admiration and there's coalition, but he's not always getting it perfectly right. And he says some very thoughtful things yeah. throughout the show. But there's some spots where you're like, dude, I mean, he's 77, right? Yeah. And so there was some clunkiness around that. And yet I felt like ultimately it's admiration. Yeah. Admiration from a person who doesn't really get it. And it's not really for him. But he kept saying like this new wave, this new generation of people, like you're the most revolutionary we've had. Yeah. And then he would kind of put it back on himself and be like, like, you've made me centrist. Like you've made me not radical anymore. But I felt like he was saying that with admiration. Yeah. Um, and and like, like it's a new thing he's never experienced. And like with a, I'm proud people are taking up this mantle. Yeah. And you're like finding new ways to give the middle finger to the man. Right. Yeah. Um, Which is like a much different way of approaching it and making jokes about it than say the guy who made the office. Not going to say his name. <laughs> oh, Yeah. I was like thinking about um, Michael Schur and I was like, what? Yeah. No, the, I know who you're talking about. The UK. Office. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of really thoughtful moments to specifically in our like VIP question period where like someone asked him a question, but started with thanks for coming to this toilet bowl of a city. And mm. I feel like I'm sure this happens in other places, but I feel like this is often how people talk about Edmonton. Like, oh, I live here, but it sucks. And I feel like, admittedly, I feel like we talked about Edmonton similarly, at least I did, until relatively recent. Yeah, I would agree. Um, but John Waters made some, like, he like kind of stopped that person before they could even finish talking. And he said, why do you call it that? Mm -hmm. And then he was like, make it better. Mm -hmm. Like, make your place better. And then he said, like, Baltimore hasn't, always been amazing but and when people leave it doesn't get any better and then he's like but snail mail is there and he kind of listed off mm -hmm. there's some other bands that you've heard of and he's like we have this thriving art scene in baltimore because people are staying and they're committed to making it better and that's an attitude we've like kind of in the last handful of years we've as we've been like we we aren't gonna leave edmonton we're gonna stay here and we have friends and community here and we have roots here and and there's a privilege kind of gross privilege in being like, I'm just going to leave the place I'm from. Yeah. I'm going to abandon it because it's not good enough for me mm -hmm. rather than being like, this place is the place I am from and I'm going to do my best to make it the best place it can be. Um, so I really love that advice. And uh, yeah. some friends that we were with also felt the same way. And they were like, yeah, yes, make it better. Do, do that. And I thought that was just so beautiful. He also had some really, great advice about like being a creative. He's like, you just got to do the hard work of being a creative and do it in whatever form comes to you, which is something we've talked a lot about with this podcast. You do music, I do writing, but this is the form creativity is taking for us right now. And that's beautiful. And if we can do other creative things, that's also awesome. But, you know, he said, you know, if I'm not making a film, I'm writing a book or I'm doing a puppet show or I'm doing this stand up, like, all of those are valid outlets of creativity and telling a story and making a difference. And, and then he talked about like, and I get up at 8am every day and I write, Yeah, you know, I do the work. And so 
I the the like kind of him sitting in a chair, house lights on, smaller VIP Q and A had some just like really beautiful conversations. Yeah, those were highlight moments for me. Absolutely. He also had. I I thought he did this so beautifully and wonderfully. Someone asked him about Leslie Van Houten, who is someone he's been friends with, who was involved in the Manson family murders. Um, they like said, how is she? And he said, I'm not going to talk about that. And that's the right thing to do or something like that. And I thought that was very. Yeah. She's out now. She's out now. That's the you last... won't hear from her again. And that's the way it should be or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I thought he handled that really gracefully and beautifully. And a couple of moments where like people asked him some like pretty uncool questions and he, as a true performer, like turned that into something. And sometimes he's 77. You asked him a question that he totally oh, it was, misunderstood. It was great. I mean, like I got a better answer than I probably would have gotten if he had answered my question. Like I, he made a, one of his bits is that he was very forthcoming with how much he loves French cinema and French filmmakers and somebody that we've covered on the show before and is a favorite filmmaker of our buddy Lori from the queer horror cult podcast the filmmaker Gaspar Noé is one of his favorites and he also said is one of his buds. But he was talking about who would do remakes of his movies and he said Gaspar Noé would do a remake of Serial Mom. So I jokingly asked him because I, I could tell he could riff really well and I feel like he could say some really funny shit. I asked him if he could elaborate on what the Gaspar Noé version of Serial Mom would look like. And then he just kind of launched into talking about how pedophiles are bad people <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they are not good and we shouldn't allow that. And then he ended it with, I know that doesn't answer your question, but there it is. And then he moved on, <laughs> he moved on to the next question. And like I said, that's a better answer than what he probably could have said about what serial yeah. mom could have looked like. And there like. were some folks who like when he didn't totally get what they had asked or go in that direction, they like doubled down on trying to ask it again. And I just think like, let the man talk. That's what we paid money for. Yeah. I, after that, <laughs> I don't, I don't need a follow up. You didn't need up. to be like, no, but like what, what would Gaspar Noe's serial mom be like? You didn't. <laughs> well, he acknowledged, I didn't answer your question. So <laughs> moving on. So that that's that's how he wanted to answer my question. So, I, yeah, I had a really good time at this. I just feel like I would be friends with him and I would like shake my head at him sometimes and be like, dude, you don't get it. Yeah. But also be like, you are hilarious and wild. Like he told a story about someone yelling at him on the street. John Waters, can I live with you? And he just said, yes. <laughs> and then he just brought them home. Um, he just seems to have like a chaotic yes energy that I really like at the same time being like he had this whole bit about how threesomes aren't it. <laughs> He's like, it's like a sand. And it started with somebody saying, what's your favorite sandwich? Like that's how he got to this. Yeah. Like it wasn't part of his routine. It was in the Q and a with the whole group. And he said, well, you know, like with a threesome, it's just the lettuce gets wilted. <laughs> and then when we were doing our distant selfie, we did it together most he, people were doing it individually. But there were some people doing it together. And when he got to us, he goes, ooh, a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a threesome with John Waters. Basically. Basically. That's what all the eyes, locking eyes with yeah, me. Yeah, he was, was like, we're going to have a sandwich later. <laughs> um, yeah, it was super cool. It was really, really fun. His routine had some like really funny moments, even though it wasn't like my favorite start to finish. But I really liked the Q&A and I just 
really liked him as a person. And after having watched these seven films and thought about him a lot, it was so cool to like have him there in front of us and, and hear him speak and talk and riff. And we don't get those opportunities in Edmonton and I want more of them and I want to be a part of trying to make more of them happen. Yeah, I, I agree. Like we just don't, yeah, we don't get a lot of that stuff. Like our buddy Elliot, like I was mentioning earlier, they were in LA and they just went to a screening of the iron giant, which also had Brad bird there doing a Q and a, Q&A, who's the yeah. director of that film. Like that shit doesn't happen here. And I think that this experience of not only John waters being brought here, being brought to our favorite theater, but the uh, lead up in getting to watch so many of his films and just immersing ourselves in his work and his voice and then getting to see him literally feet away from us was the perfect culmination of the whole experience. Yeah, it was awesome. Like it was surreal. It didn't really feel like it actually happened. And yeah. And I stan a COVID conscious King, you know, like I, on the (laughs) off chance that he was just like signing things for VIP people, even though they told us he wouldn't, I did bring my bootleg copy of Crybaby that my dad taped off of um, satellite at his work. And like, I feel, I feel like if John Waters were to sign anything, it would would be like, he did. He was really not happy about people who buy like Etsy stuff. That's like unlicensed stuff. But I think like a bootleg copy of his movie, he'd be like, that's punk. Like if you had an opportunity, like we didn't know what the whole selfie situation was going to look like and it didn't lend its it ended up not lending itself well to like talking with him or anything like that but if you did get the chance to like interface with him and be like i have this bootleg copy of crybaby that my dead dad recorded for me off of satellite with his handwriting that says crybaby on it yeah that he'd be like it's crybaby loose cannons and all dogs go to heaven (laughs) and then it previously had something else on it that my dad scratched out because he taped over it so, and we haven't tried to watch it because we don't have a VHS and I'm really hoping he didn't tape over it with porn, but I did take the tab off of it or somebody took the tab off of it so you can't record on it again. <laughs> Although sweet trick for that is just put some duct tape over the tab and you can record on it again. Damn. Cool yeah. tricks. I know. But anyway. I f- but I feel fun. like he totally would have said Yeah, that. I feel like he would have been like, that's amazing. Cry baby. So good. Yeah. No, punk ethos. It was, yeah. Fuck it, I'm punk. Suck it, I'm punk. Suck it, I'm punk. Um, Should we talk about the dads? We should talk about the dads. Okay. Who is your bad dad nominee for the John Waters Masterclass in Filth? So there's a lot going on in these movies. I picked a duo. I picked the Marbles from Pink Flamingos. So that's the like group who are the pair who are assaulting and kidnapping women and selling them to lesbian couples and also like trying to prove that they are the filthiest people alive. Yeah. Um, they, they were at the top <laughs> of my list as well. I didn't pick them, but they were up there. I just feel like in their quest for being the filthiest person, they take everyone else down with them and they're depraved, but not in a fun way, in a way that harms others instead of including others. I feel like divine is filthy and depraved in a way that includes people and only like harms those who, I mean, other than the poor chicken, but mm. only harms those who are causing harm. They're just like the worst of the worst. Yeah. No, absolutely. Great pick. Um, but. I picked Don Davenport from Female Trouble, who's d- <laughs> divine. Um, I mean, just for where that character goes in that film. 
so selfish to the point that she becomes harmful. And she has just like this spoiled, rotten attitude that seeps into her actions and the things that she does. And as soon as she's able to like kind of get any notoriety or, or recognition for who she is and the kind of things that she does, she just revels in it more and turns it up even more. And then it becomes exploitative and real nasty. And I, it's tough because I feel like it's on a similar level, but maybe not as extreme. As the marbles. As the marbles. Yeah, I think, I think the marbles need to take it. Because I also had them from Female Trouble <laughs> as, as a short list, but they were, they're worse in Pink Flamingos. Yeah. And I'm happy to, to give the one-two punch. Okay, so the, the marbles don't, don't be, be our dad. dads. Rad dad. I picked mom from Serial Mom. No, you didn't. I did. Because, I mean, ultimately, she cares for the people that she loves and cares about their happiness and wants to ensure their happiness. Also, wants to ensure her own happiness. She's emblematic of the the action and the revenge and the chaos we all would like to exact sometimes. So I feel like she's really relatable on a human level in validating our feelings and that they are very valid feelings when we have them. And she's just an agent of love and chaos. How fun. She does love her family. She doesn't like if you wear white shoes after Labor Day. Get your shit together. That's (laughs) something that she could teach me. (laughs) I picked Penny from Hairspring. I thought you would. That's a good one. I just thought she was such a good supportive friend who just like doesn't get fussed about anything. Mm. And then even though it's just a really um, subplot of the film, like her love for seaweed and her like fuck you to her parents. Also, we didn't talk about this in Hairspray, but John Waters like brief cameo is the like person who's using like a form of conversion therapy to make Penny not like a black boy. It was hilarious. Yeah. Um, and I just really liked Penny. Yeah. I want to let you make the call. Did you name her? Did you also name mom as your bonus daddy? I didn't, but we could. Let's do that. I think Penny doesn't kill people. So therefore. Thus rad. (laughs) That's a little bit more rad than mom. So Penny from Hairspray. Be our dad. Be your dad. But it would have been funny to say mom. Be our dad. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been funny. I'm sure we'll get an opportunity in the future. But bonus daddy, all morals aside, can be mom. Can be mom. From Serial Mom. So mom from Serial Mom. Weet woot. Okay. As we come to a close on this rad rap of John Waters' masterclass in filth, what will you take away from this experience? I'm going to take away that queer punk DIY sensibility of just stick it to the man and the way that John Waters creates this like coalition that beckons the queers and the misfits and the freaks from all the different parts of the world and all the different ways that, you know, the status quo in the majority harms and suppresses. And he just beckons to all of us and says, across 50 years, join me. Like his films feel like an invitation. 
They feel like an invitation to those who see themselves in some part of the film and they feel like a big middle finger and a like, get the hell out of our space. I'm going to make this so uncomfortable that you leave and that this is just a place for us to everybody else. Yeah. And I think that is so beautiful. And I felt that even when he doesn't always do it perfectly right, which I feel a bit in the, like just, I felt that in Pink Flamingos. I felt it in his, in Hairspray. I feel it in his like live show. He's not always getting it perfectly right, but nobody does. And at the end of the day, I think he's a beacon for the misfits. Yeah. And I just really love that. That's yeah. What will you take? Away? That's really well put. Yeah. I, I mean, I will take away that I am just a full on John Waters fan. Now I am so grateful for his punk attitude that spans his entire filmography that we've seen. And I'm so happy to delve further into his filthy world and just it all culminating in us getting to see him live and getting to ask him a question and have him give the answer he gave and the insights that he gave. It was just the perfect button to this entire journey. And I, I echo what you said too, just about how he implores us to join in and it's just this it's this sort of rally call of we all have middle fingers let's use them yeah and i don't know what's more punk than that yeah i love it i'm all in so with that i will say for bad dad rad dad we officially declare john waters masterclass in filth radically wrapped thank you so much for listening we drop a new episode of our regular show every thursday until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram and threads at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual letterbox. Our usernames will be in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you could please share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. But that's going to do it for these filthy punks, baby, this week. So until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Mm-hmm.